0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Reynolds on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, what can I say? Bill Bernstein is a brilliant author, neurologist, financial theorist, investor. His most recent book, The Delusion of Crowds, Why People Go Man in Groups, is going to be one of those must-read books in the pantheon of both bubbles and behavioral finance, uh, he's written so many books, Birth of Plenty, Investors, Asset Allocator, Four Pillars of Investing, uh, d- just, just just, too many to mention. I find Bill to be one of those really unique people who has a number of insights into the world of investing, partly because he's a neurologist and, and really spent a lot of time learning how people's brains function and what drives us in our decision-making process. But just as important, he's a historian and a deep researcher and author. And so not only does he understand the neurology and the, the cognitive science of our brains, but he is very familiar with all of the academic literature and all of the actual history of what's taken place over the past Pick a time frame, 500, 1,000, 2,000 years. And so all of his work is always a deep dive. Every page is filled with so much fascinating information. I'm really enjoying Delusions of Crowds. Uh, I'm about halfway through it. All of his books are absolutely essential reading to me. So if you are at all interested in anything from cognitive theory, behavioral finance, investing, anthropology uh, bubble behavior bitcoin tesla you name it you're going to find this to be just a a fascinating dive so with no further delay my conversation with william bernstein this is masters in business with barry ritholtz on bloomberg radio my extra special guest this week is william bernstein he began his career as a neurologist before becoming an author, financial theorist, and investment advisor. He's written a dozen books, the most recent of which is The Delusion of Crowds Why People Go Mad in Groups. Who better to discuss people going insane than a neurologist investor? William Bernstein, welcome back to Bloomberg. As always, a pleasure, Barry. So let's dive right into this. Before you were an investor and an author, you worked as a medical doctor with a specialty in neurology. How did that background help you as an investor?
1: Really only in a very indirect way. You would think that being a clinical neurologist uh, would help you with psychology uh, and the neuropsychology, but really uh, practicing neurology is a very uh, down-and-dirty, ground-level occupation. Um, you know, what I like to explain to people uh, is that uh, the great neuroscientists that we think of uh, you know, people like the Damasio's uh, are like great artists. They're Michelangelo's and Da Vinci's, uh, or as what I did was more Sherwin-Williams. It was neck pain and back pain. <laughs> Rather, what helped me uh, write about finance is simply the scientific training and back of being uh, a doctor, uh, and, you know, the importance of, of uh, examining data, seeking it out, and rigorously analyzing it.
0: Huh. Interesting. So, So I mentioned to some colleagues that I was going to be speaking with you, and and one of them uh, said to ask you, Michael Batnick said to ask you, when you started writing why people go mad in groups, did you expect it to come out at a time when people were in fact going mad in groups?
1: No, this is the very definition of dumb luck. Uh, as it turns out, my publisher decided to uh, delay bringing the book out for about six months because they didn't want to bring it out right before the election because they figured that would suck up too much of people's bandwidth. Uh, and so it got delayed until just at the moment when people started you know, believing in QAnon and occupying the Capitol building uh, and going nuts over Bitcoin and GameStop.
0: So we'll, we'll get to just about each and every one of those things, but it, it leads to an obvious question. How has the Internet changed the psychology of crowds? How has it affected how people respond to these mass delusions?
1: Well, you can think of a mass delusion the same way you think of a pan, the pandemic, uh There is an agent, a causative agent, so in the case of the pandemic it's the coronavirus in the case of the uh the black Death, it was Yersinia pestis uh and then there's a vector, and the vector for covid is people uh coughing and spraying each other uh with droplets uh and with the black Death, it was uh, you know fleas and rats transmitting. The disease across great distances. Well, it's the same thing. It's the same way with uh, with delusions. The the agent is the narrative, uh, and the more compelling the narrative, uh, the more virulent, the more dangerous the agent. And then you've got the vector, uh, and the vector is the medium through which the uh, delusion spreads. Uh, and what we saw. Uh, over the past 10 years is the evolution and the explosion of social media. Uh, And so that is one of the most powerful vectors of delusions that we've ever ever seen. And it's kind of like we've gone, you know, in the the days of the old media from being, you know, widely separated people who are infected, uh, and we've gone now into a world where everybody's in the same small airless room and they're coughing on each other.
0: (laughs) So let's stay with the idea of narrative. Um, One of the things you refer to is that human beings are cognitive misers, and according to psychologists, we much prefer mental shortcuts and heuristics and a compelling narrative. What is the role of narratives in in these manias?
1: Well, the narrative is the cognitive agent. Okay, and you can think of a narrative as being viral to the extent that it's compelling. And what psychologists have found is that the more compelling a narrative is, the more corrosive it is to our cognitive ability and our analytical uh, ability. Uh, And so, you know, what I did in the book was I identified the most compelling narratives. Uh, that we're exposed to. And the one, of course, that's most financially applicable is the narrative that you can become effortlessly rich just by going online and clicking a few keys, and there's almost no effort involved. That's a very pleasing and a very compelling narrative. The other narrative that I uh, examine in great length in the book is the most compelling religious narrative out there which is the one that the world is going to end very quickly uh which it turns out is far more prevalent than most people in your in my bubble uh, uh think that it is
0: so let's stay with that because there's some really fascinating combinations of apocalyptic end times and investment mania one of the things i've found about the hardcore gold bugs uh, as well as the hyperinflationists is that overlap between, hey, when it hits the fan and it all goes down, you better have some gold coins because that paper money will be worthless. That seems to really combine the religious Armageddon with the financial Armageddon.
1: Yeah, and you can throw into that conspiracy theories. Uh, You know, social psychologists have found that the two biggest correlates of conspiracy theories are a belief in the end times, that is, the theological, the religious end times, uh, and the other uh, characteristic that it correlates uh, with is Manichaean thinking, a belief that the world is uh, divided into black and white, good people and bad people, with nothing uh, in between. To the Manichaean personality, good people never do bad things and bad people never do good things, even though we know that happens all the time.
0: Yeah, that binary approach to reality seems to be a gross oversimplification, and it it certainly doesn't work for investing. I can't imagine it works in in day-to-day life, although people certainly seem to be functioning despite holding some pretty insane beliefs.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're right. Occasionally, you know, Jim Cramer gets things right.
0: (laughs) So Cramer is an interesting example because he leads – um, a, a group of followers. Uh, you could say the same thing about Barstool Sports. You could say the same thing about a number of different, either financial or religious movements. But when we look at either Robin Hood or or Reddit's uh, Wall Street Bets, there are no leaders there. There are no proselytizers there. Can you have a mob with no leader? I think there's something like 10 million people follow Wall Street Bets but no one person controls that group. Oh, absolutely. In fact,
1: that's the way it happens most of the time. Uh, You know, when someone goes up on a ledge and threatens to jump and a crowd uh, gathers below them, a small percentage of the time, maybe, you know, a few percent, maybe 5 or 10 percent of the time, people start shouting up for the person to jump, all right? Uh, This is one of the sad you know, accoutrements of human nature, well, certainly there's no leader there. And it's it's certainly possible. In fact, I, I think that history shows that most mass manias really don't have an identifiable leader.
0: Quite interesting. So there are some really fascinating quotes throughout the book. I want to start with, more often than not, we avoid contrary facts and data. When we cannot avoid them, our erroneous assessments will occasionally even harden them and yet more amazingly make us more likely to proselytize them this sounds very much like cognitive dissonance how key a factor is that in both religious and financial decision making
1: well you said the magic the magic words Uh, You know, cognitive dissonance was something that was written about and talked about by Leon Festinger, although he didn't invent the term, Uh, and uh, it's, you know, it's it's somewhat overdone, I think, especially in modern culture, but it's certainly still a fact that really what cognitive dissonance is about and confirmation bias is about is it's not necessarily doubling down or reinforcing uh, your beliefs when presented with contrary data, although that happens all the time, but it's more the avoidance of inconvenient uh, facts and things that disconfirm your theory. And to give you an example, there are people out there who believe that the Bible is perfectly prophetic. And there are a lot of very prophetic things in the Bible, things that came true. But there are a lot more things that the Bible prophesizes that didn't come true. And those get conveniently ignored by religious fundamentalists.
0: So you mention in the book State of Balance that let's say you're not a um Trump supporter, but a good friend of yours is a Trump supporter. That creates an inherent tension that not just the political debate, but the ability to reconcile, hey, here's a person I like, but they have views I disagree with. How does that state of balance get reconciled in in a brain? And I don't know if that's the best example from the book, but just that concept of being able to manage two inconsistent beliefs at the same time.
1: Well, what you're talking about is a concept that was written about in 1946 by a psychologist by the name of Fritz Heider, and it's an important concept uh, because it explains a lot, so I'll spend just a little bit of time on it, which is that of the balanced state. So let's say that you're, you know, a Trump supporter, okay, uh, and you meet someone and they're a Trump supporter, and you really like the person, all right, then you're in a balanced state. All right now, if you meet someone who thinks that Donald Trump is Satan incarnate and you think that that person is a charcoal head, then you 're in a balanced state too, because it enables you to dismiss his or her opinion uh, but on the other hand, if you 're a Trump supporter and you disagree with your very best friend about it uh, about Donald Trump, then you 're in an unbalanced state, and you have to resolve that you have to either have to decide that Donald Trump isn't so good, or you have to decide that you don't like your friends so much anymore, which is much more likely to, to happen, because people find it easier to lose their friends than to uh, completely obliterate their their belief system. Uh, And so you can actually do functional magnetic resonance imaging, and you can see these two mechanisms at work. You can see certain areas of the brain lighting up when you're in a balanced state, and you can see uh, certain other areas of the uh, brain light up when you're in an unbalanced state, and then when that gets resolved, you see other areas of the brain
0: light up. So when we hear about Family members having disputes with other family members over QAnon, and people literally being cut off by their parents and others who have fallen prey to—do uh, we call it a cult or a belief system? It, it, is that balanced state issue. What's underlying that schism with even within families?
1: Yes, uh, to 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 get a, you know to bring in a four-bit term. That's a classic hydarian unbalanced state, uh, and it has to be resolved one way or the other. And the way most people resolve it is they cut themselves off from people who they have strong political uh, disagreements with.
0: Huh, quite, quite interesting. Let, let's move towards uh, fear and greed. Uh, those are the phrases I've always heard in finance. Uh, but if we want to get more specific, the, when we look at the limbic system, you discuss more precisely I'm gonna I'm gonna mangle this. The nuclei, accumbens, and the uh, amygdala. How important is the limbic system to our financial behavior?
1: Well, it's almost everything. Uh, and you know, to the extent that you ex- succeed in finance, you succeed in finance to the extent that you can suppress the limbic system, your system one, uh, which is the the very fast moving emotional system that we have. If you can't suppress that, uh, you're probably going to die poor.
0: (laughs) That's interesting. I, I have a few more specific questions from the neurology perspective. Also from the perspective of evolutionary history, you reference a preference for quote, rationalization over rationality. What evolutionary purpose does that serve?
1: Well, in a state of nature, you have to react very quickly. If you see, you know, black and yellow stripes in your peripheral vision or you hear the hiss of the snake, you would better move and better move quickly. Uh, and that leads to a number of things. But number one is the dominance of your fast-moving limbic system. The limbic system is the fastest-moving uh, central structure that you, that you have, at least, uh, you know, in your brain it is. Uh, and, you know, the, the central nervous system extends below the brain, but that's, <laughs> I'm getting too much in the weeds. Uh, and so, evolutionarily, uh, it's got real survival value, but it also leads to something else, which is patternization, okay? Seeing patterns uh, that really aren't there because there's relatively little penalty uh for doing that. If you if you if you think you see yellow and black black stripes in your peripheral vision and you jump, but it's really not a tiger, it's something else, uh you haven't lost much. But if you underinterpret the the black and yellow stripes, then you're then you're lunch.
0: So 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 false positive
1: evolutionary drive uh, that let me, lead us to overinterpret things, and the, the analogy I think that's, that's best is that you know if you're a skunk, millions of years of evolution have told you that when you meet a large predator, you turn 180 degrees, lift your tail, and spray, uh, and that's you know, very, very functional and very useful in a state of nature. But in a semi-urban environment where the biggest threat to your existence is a hunk of steel weighing two tons moving at 60 miles an hour, that is not uh, a, a functional response. And unfortunately, that's the world we live in today.
0: Huh. So false positives carry no cost, but false negatives are really significant from an evolutionary perspective.
1: From an evolution, yeah, but today it's the other way around. Today, the false positives that, we're, that we, we're, we're prone to have a very high cost.
0: So let's stay with that theme. Humans attend to bad news much more strongly than good news. We focus on negative outcomes. What's the genetic advantage of being more biased to spotting bad news than good news?
1: Well again it's got obvious survival uh value in the first place it's something that's almost so obvious that we never we never talk about it. Um, you know I mean things generally getting better is not what makes it to the headlines all right uh, so we don't attend to good news as much as we attend to bad news and in a state of nature, once again, it has obvious uh survival value. one of the questions I get asked as as a doctor, uh, or did get asked as a doctor, and people who still ask me this question is, you know, when I was uh, five, you know, I was ten years old. I I, I ate uh, uh, some 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 Chinese food, and I got horribly sick. I'm sick, and I've not been able to look at Chinese food ever since. Why is that? I can't I can't get past it. And the answer is very simple. If in a state of nature you ate a certain mushroom and it made you sick, uh, never wanting to have that mushroom again, was a very useful
0: response. Hmm, Interesting. So I love the quote uh, you used uh, from Charles Kindleberger. There's nothing so disturbing to one's well-being and judgment as to see a friend get rich. Why is that? Break that down for us. Wouldn't somebody in your tribe getting rich help your own survival uh, prospects from a historical basis?
1: Well, one of the, you know, what my book really is, is it's really a meditation on human nature. So we've already discussed uh, the fact that, you know, man is the the ape that tells stories. Uh, The the foremost thing, which we haven't talked about yet, is man is the ape that imitates. Uh, But the third most important characteristic of human nature I talk about is man is the ape that seeks status. Uh, why do we seek status? Well, because it helps us pass on our DNA, particularly if you're a male. Uh, you know, it's, it's why rock stars, uh, and, and athletes do so well with, with women, because in a state of nature, uh, if you're good at telling stories or if you're good at hunting animals, uh, you can support mates. So it's the same thing. It's, it's, it's a very, it's a very, uh, basic part of sexual selection. We seek status so we can pass on our DNA.
0: Hmm, Quite interesting. So let's talk about some of the parallels between religious zealotry and financial mania. If we were to think about how social epidemics uh, like financial bubbles and and violent end-time apocalyptic perspectives originate and propagate, why is there such parallels between finance and religion,
1: uh, because they basically involve pretty much the same the same drives. Uh, you know, I've talked about how a compelling financial narrative uh, can sweep people up in its ambit, and the same thing happens with the compelling religious narratives. Now, if we want to look at you know a compelling narrative, and we want to go with the rubric of bad is more compelling than good, or bad is stronger than good, then the most compelling narrative in all the world has to be the one in which the world ends uh, in a a fiery inferno. Uh, And so that's a compelling narrative that really gets people's attention. And then to bring the status uh, part of it in, uh, you know, if the world is going to end in fiery in a, in a fiery inferno, then what more pleasing outcome than if you're able to avoid it because you and your friends are devout? So that uh, speaks to our desire to acquire both status. You know, the, the financial narratives, you're going to become effortlessly rich. That's very pleasing. The religious narrative is that the world, everybody is going to go to hell except for pe- you and people who believe like you and uh, it's it's very pleasing it gives you and your in-group status
0: so on a very related quote from the book quote immersion in narrative brings about isolation from the facts of the real world end quote how significant is that separation from real world facts both in finance and in religion and what happens when people are confronted? with the truth of their disconnect from real-world facts.
1: Well, in finance, that's one of the, the ways that you identify a mania or a bubble. It's one of the characteristics, which is when you disconfirm when you give a disconfirming opinion to someone who is in the grips of a financial mania, this delusion that they're going to become effortlessly rich, uh, they push back uh, and they get very angry. Uh, and I don't know if you this happened to you, uh, what, what you were doing, you know, back in the late 90s. But I was still, you know, in middle age back then, and when I would express skepticism about the internet bubble. People just didn't disagree with me. They got angry at me. They told me I just didn't get it. They told me I was an idiot, and one or two uh, people made aspersions about my my parenthood. Uh, They don't like that at all, and that was an experience that a lot of people had. And it's the same thing, obviously, with with religion. It's why you don't argue with people ever about religion. You don't want to even think about disconfirming their, their, their religious beliefs.
0: So I had a very similar experience leading up to the 0809 uh, financial crisis. I was bearish on stocks, real estate, derivatives. And in the beginning, people just laughed. There was just complete and total, you know, you're out of your mind. But it was only a little later that it became anger. And then once it turned out I got lucky, nobody wanted to talk about it. And everybody seemed to be convinced that they saw it coming also.
1: Yeah. My favorite example of, of that was, you know, in somewhere around 06 or 07, I was listening to Bob Schiller be interviewed by somebody about the real estate bubble that was still, you know, evolving at that point. And he was being interviewed alongside of someone from, you know, the National Association of Realtors. Uh, and she wasn't having any, any part of it. And finally, she got so frustrated with Professor Schiller that she stopped him and said, Professor Schiller, I don't know who you think you, you, you are, but you don't know the first thing about real estate.
0: <laughs> That's hilarious. Nobel Prize to follow so here's another quote from the another quote from the book that i like religious manias tend to play out in the worst of times during which mankind desires delivery from its troubles and a return to the quote-unquote good old days so what is it about the good old days that seems so compelling to people
1: i don't know the answer to that uh, but it is a a constant, near constant feature of human nature to believe that things were always better a generation or two or three generations ago, when it's manifestly not the, uh, that's manifestly not the case. And you can see it all the way back uh, to the dawn of literacy. I mean, one of the first archaic Greek poets was a fellow named Hesiod, who was no, well known for a, a collection that he wrote called works in days, uh, and he talks about how, you know, four or five generations ago, there was, a, there was a generation of golden men who lived wonderful lives and were virtuous and were prosperous, and then with each successive generation, things went, went, went to hell in a handbasket until, you know, they were in the current generation when no one respected their elders, and the world was corrupt and things were generally, generally awful. Uh, it was, you know, the origin of kids these days.
0: Two areas where people tend to go mad are religion and money. And some people have talked about some current uh, assets that have run up as combining the two. And I think you could look at Bitcoin that way. You could look at Tesla that way. What are your thoughts on, on those two particular assets?
1: Well, I think certainly Bitcoin is, exhibits all the behavior of a bubble, uh, you, you see large groups of people who think that they're going to become effortlessly rich uh, investing in Bitcoin. Uh, you see people quitting their jobs to, to trade it. Uh, you see, uh, anger uh, directed at you when you express uh, skepticism. My favorite bit of anger uh, was uh, uh, John McAfee's famous statement that he would perform an act on himself that requires great uh, spinal flexibility on national TV if it didn't hit a half a million dollars. And then finally. By a date see, that's already passed,
0: him. right? He already missed his window. Yeah, exactly. He lost that bet.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so you see that, uh, you know, with, with with certainly with Bitcoin. Now, Tesla is a more difficult case. I mean, Tesla may actually wind up being a very successful uh, company. Whether it will justify its its valuation is another story. There are other people in the world who know how to make electric vehicles besides Elon Musk. Uh, and, and so it's not immediately clear uh, that that's what's going on. I don't... See the kind of mania surrounding Tesla stock. What I see the mania surrounding is the Tesla car, which is a different thing. Uh, the, the real passion that I see is not that people love their Tesla stock. It's it's the the, the evangelism of people who love their Tesla cars.
0: I'm going to take it a step further than that. I I just had the Mustang Mach E for a week to play with, and it's not even the cars. It's the software within the car. Whenever I've discussed the Mustang with other Tesla owners, the compare and contrast is not the build quality or the design or some of the things that Ford does really well. It's the network of superchargers. It's the -the over-the-air automatic updates. It's the self-driving. It's all these software things that Tesla has created beyond the actual vehicle itself. It's kind of fascinating.
1: Yeah, well, that's because you and I are older than dirt, and we, you know, <laughs> are of a generation when cars were really, really important, uh, you know, to young people, their, their phones and the capability of their phones are much more important than the capability of their cars.
0: To my generation, uh, a car meant freedom, but the current generation, I don't think, feels the same way about escaping a small town as Bruce Springsteen did in, in Born to Run. It's, it's certainly a generational difference. So what's interesting to me, there's a lot of things interesting to me about this book, but you discuss in the introduction on how Charles Mackay was really the influence and the inspiration for this. So what motivated you to want to update the original work by Charles Mackay uh, about the madness of crowds? Well, yeah, Mackay
1: was uh a journalist who in eighteen forty one writes this book, Memoirs of Extraordinarily Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. And as you and I both well know, it's a, a seminal book in finance. It's one of those books that you tell every practitioner at some point to read because it described the two great bubbles uh of the uh of the 18th century and also the supposed bubble that surrounded uh, tulip bulbs in the 17th century, which uh, turns out not to be as uh, a society-wide phenomenon as, as Mackay made it out uh, to be. But it's the most famous chapter in the book because he coins the word tulip mania uh, and gives it to the to the English language. And so for generations... After that, the book has remained in print and has saved people's bacon. Uh, uh, Bernard Baruch famously read the book right before the crash in 1907 and uh, recognized the signs of the time. And uh, he loved the book so much that he actually wrote the introduction to the 1932 uh, edition of the book. And of course, I read the book in the mid-1990s, just before the tech bubble started to really get going. And I thought it was vaguely interesting. It was sort of like a bad B-movie about the Roman Empire. Uh, it wasn't really relevant to the financial markets at the time, which were pretty well behaved in retrospect. Uh, and then all of a sudden, before my very eyes, I saw this bubble blow, and, you know, it saved my bacon, the way it did probably most other people who had read the book. So that sort of stayed in my memory banks. Uh, And then, you know, five or six years ago, uh, I observed the way everybody else did, the ability of the Islamic State to attract tens of thousands of people from around the world, uh, including from some very prosperous and secure Western nations, to go to one of the most dangerous and worst places on the world, and to, you know, to in many cases, to, to die uh, or to become seriously injured. And the way they did it, it turns out, was by deploying this end-times narrative, which Mackay had also written about in, in his book. And I realized at that point I had to update the book, because, you know, we now know a lot more about the neuropsychology of why these things occur, which Mackay couldn't know because of the state of science at the time.
0: So I love this quote from Charles Mackay. Quote, Men, it has been said, think in herds. It will be seen that they go mad in herds while they only recover their senses more slowly and one by one. Why is that?
1: Well, it's because... Disconfirmation is is a solitary process. It's a process where you have to look inside yourself and say, "My God, I was an idiot," uh, and it's a very individual process. Whereas the spreading of the mania, the spreading of the virus of the contagion, is is a is a social process.
0: So you mentioned social networks earlier, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or or TikTok or what have you. Um, they seem to be accelerating both the creation of these memes and the way they're propagated. Do you think they're a key factor in some of these episodes, how quickly they seem to come out of nowhere, how big they blow up, and then what happens to them after the fact?
1: Yes, I I think that's, that's absolutely true uh, a mania can spread more rapidly and more widely today than it ever could uh before the thing that's that's really interesting is that you know with each iteration with each advance in communications technology you have the potential for accelerating Uh, Delusions. For example, it's no accident that uh, two of the delusions that I wrote about in the book uh, were 16th century episodes that followed hard on the heels of the invention of the printing press. That wasn't an accident. All right. uh, that we started to see, you know, several religious mass delusions in in, in continental Europe starting around uh, the year 1500 uh, or so. The really interesting thing is why we didn't see all that many manias uh, with radio and television, and the answer was they had built-in filters. All right, uh, you know, serious journalistic ethics. Walter Cronkite and you know Edward R. Merrill Uh, tended not to lie to people, although Adolf Hitler did, and he certainly uh, spread a mass delusion, and he did it primarily with radio.
0: That's interesting. You know, if you look at the book, Pop, Why Bubbles Are Great for the Economy, Dan Gross goes over every time a new technology comes out, if not a full-blown bubble, then just a massive land rush and overinvestment, misdeployment of capital, Accompanied everything from railroads to radio television automobiles um even fiber optics, you end up with this giant investment because of a fear of missing the next big thing, and it usually ends up with a handful of winners, but most of the rest of the companies turn out to be worthless, but it doesn't necessarily become a full blown bubble across all of society
1: yeah that is that is something that that's almost a constant of financial history is there are technologies that really change the world. I mean, you know, um uh the internet really did change everything, okay? It's just that it didn't make the average investor uh, who invested in the tech companies of the late nineties, wealthy. Uh the paradigm for that is something I write about in the book, which is uh Global Crossing, Gary Winnick's firm, uh, which was, you know, a fiasco from a financial uh point of view. But the man did build, you know, a large percentage of the world's fiber optic uh, capacity, and he didn't foresee two things. Not that he should have at least one of which he should have foreseen, which was that, you know, there would be competing lines uh, laid uh, that would cut into his profits. But the other thing which he didn't foresee, and I don't think anyone really foresaw, was that the improvements in dry plant, that is the relays and the transmitters and the receivers along the fiber optic chains, would uh, improve so dramatically that a fiber, the capacity of a fiber to carry data, Uh, would, without changing the the fiber at all, would improve by orders of magnitude without laying any new fiber. So between, I don't know, about 2002 and and, and 2015, there was almost no fiber, new fiber laid, uh, and yet the capacity, the carrying capacity of the fiber went up by about a thousandfold.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Arguably, Global Crossing bandwidth capacity is responsible for uh, everything from YouTube to Facebook that could not have existed in in the pre-Fat Pipe days.
1: Yeah, the concept that I talk about in the book is that tech- technology investors tend to be capitalism's philanthropists. Okay, they tend to put money into vitally needed infrastructure that benefits society at large, that benefits all of us, whether it's the railroads or radio or television uh, or aircraft manufacture. but uh, they don't make any money in the process. they They'd probably be better off as the old joke goes, uh, throwing half the money out the window and burning the other half.
0: <laughs> so I want to stick with the uh, some of the eighteenth century bubbles. you You write about the South Sea bubble and the Mississippi company bubble uh, in Europe. One of the data points that just stunned me, 40% of 18th century European stock issuance occurred in a single year, 1720. How on earth is that even possible?
1: Well, uh, we saw that, that that was an extreme example. I don't think we've seen anything quite like it ever since. Uh, but certainly, you know, the the, the amount of uh, IPO issuance of of new share issuance of new company births, you know, in the 1990s uh, was was a very similar phenomenon, and left us with some you know companies that are very important today, prime among which is Amazon, no
0: con intended, <laughs> to say the least. I also want to stick with the parallel you draw from the South Sea Company and real estate. You, you mentioned the South Sea Company was worth twice the value of all of the land in England. And we saw an echo of that in the 1980s, thanks to the Tokyo real estate bubble, when the um, Imperial Palace was worth more than all of the land in California. What is it about uh, real estate that encourages this sort of uh, interesting bubblicious behavior?
1: Well, you have to go back a step and ask what are the factors that underlie bubbles. Uh, And the biggest factor of all, once you get past the new technology, is of course the availability of easy credit. So invariably you see bubbles in times of uh, uh, lowering gradually falling interest rates, which certainly has some relevance today. Uh, and what happens is, is the classic real estate bubble cycle, which is you buy a piece of real estate, uh, it appreciates in value that enables you to borrow more uh, when you collateralize it. Uh, so you take that capital and you buy more real estate, uh, the prices continue to rise. Uh, which enables you to borrow more and more, and it becomes a self-inflating cycle until it finally blows up.
0: That's my favorite scene in the movie version of The Big Short, where uh, Steve Carell is talking to, I don't remember if it was a waitress or a stripper who who owned a house and was talking about how she financed it, and uh, he asked her a question, and her answer was houses. He's like, you have more than one? She says, I have five. And it's just that classic moment of oh, that's what people do with free money and lots of leverage. They go out and try and, uh, try and get rich as quickly as they can.
1: Yeah, my, my, my favorite story, and I think it may have come from one of your episodes, was when Dick Thaler did the side bet scene with, who was it, Jennifer Lopez. Uh, and, it turned, and it turned out that Jennifer Lopez didn't know who Dick Thaler was, and Dick Thaler didn't know who Jennifer Lopez was.
0: Was it J-Lo or was it Selena Gomez? I don't remember.
1: Yeah, was, I, 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 I honestly don't know. It tells you what generation I belong to, but the actress didn't know who who uh, who, who Taylor was, and vice versa, and I thought that was hilarious.
0: To be fair, another person a decade before they won their Nobel Prize, so you know, may, maybe it was a uh, you know to her, just an obscure economics mm-hmm. professor toiling in obscurity in Chicago. <laughs> there, there's there's a couple of really just. Fascinating digressions within the book. I-, I love this this reference to some of Barry Eichengreen's work. He's an authority on the gold standard, and his observation was that nations recovered from the Great Depression in the precise order they abandoned hard money and a currency backed by gold. I have never seen that precise quote. How significant was hard money and gold? to the basic narrative and the delusion that gold was somehow special.
1: Well, in the first place, we get back to the the Paris bubble, the Mississippi company uh, bubble. And that was John Law's great innovation, was he realized that hard money uh, was Drag on any company's economy uh, and financial development, and so he basically introduced paper currency uh, to France. And unfortunately, he went he went overboard. Uh, but he's probably, you know, I think he's arguably the the, um, the father of modern central banking and modern finance. He invented the system that we have today. Just that he, you know, he and the uh, the Duke or or uh, blew it, blew it up, so Green, uh is is of course you know did the seminal research in this area you 're talking about a book called golden Setters, uh and the research behind it whenever you hear a the uh, mainstream economist uh you know gag when you mention the gold uh standard uh it's Barry Eichengreen the channeling and 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 his work. My favorite trope of the gold bug is that gold has been money for five thousand years uh it certainly has not uh been money for five thousand years the money you know it wasn't started to be used as money until uh the Hellenistic period uh in in greece which was not much more than 2000 uh years ago and before that lots of things were money you know a liter of grain was money a head of cattle was money uh if you wanted something that looked more like hard money uh back in the ancient world silver was was the real hard money of that era it wasn't gold
0: yeah uh, it's going to be curious to see what happens to the gold bugs when we um lasso some asteroid with you know a billion metric tons of, of gold and platinum in it it, it might change the belief in hard, hard money. There's another issue we really didn't get to, which is the overwhelming proclivity of human beings to imitate the behavior of, of those around them, regardless of how baseless or self-destructive that behavior may be. What's behind our propensity for imitation?
1: Well, in the first place, and we really haven't talked about this, when you ask what is the primary... Uh, psychological mechanism of manias. It's our proclivity to imitate uh, from something as basic as just yawning. It's why yawning is infectious, and the infectiousness of yawning is something that's actually been studied in some detail. And I won't get into how interesting it is, but trust me, yawning is 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 very very interesting. Uh, but what is behind that is is something that's that's very simple, uh, and that's the paradigm of thinking of the human occupation of the New World, North and South America, which began somewhere around 15 20,000 uh, years ago. And within the space of several thousand years, humankind spread from the frozen Arctic wastes down through the North American continent and into South America and the Andes and all the way down to the Tierra del Fuego. And along the way, uh, human beings had to learn how to make kayaks, uh, and how to hunt bison, and how to make poison blow darts. And all of those endeavors are very complex, they're very hard to learn, and no one person is going to figure out how to do it well uh, on their own. And so the way that you will survive and the way your tribe will survive is if you're very good at imitating. You know, if Joe and his friends figure out how to build a kayak uh, from from scratch, then rather than figure it out yourself, you're going to imitate that. All right? So the ability to imitate carries enormous survival value, not only for individuals, but for entire societies as well. And unfortunately, it's a good deal more uh, dysfunctional uh, in, the, in, in the modern world, because that ability to imitate carries with it the proclivity to manias. And the proclivity of manias, it may not be that uh, dangerous in, the, in a state of nature, but in a world of social media, it's deadly. Huh.
0: Interesting. So, you know, we, we briefly touched on, on some of the evolutionary adaptations that worked so well on the savannah but hurt us um, in modern times, What is some of the anthropology behind this? Why are we simply status-seeking, narrative-believing imitators? Give us a little more background about some of the academic work that's um, been done in this space.
1: Well, the, the narrative... Proclivity is, is something that, if you think about it, is, is fairly obvious, which is that when you and your, your, your colleagues 15,000 years ago went out to, to hunt woolly, woolly mammoths, you didn't issue mathematical vectors to each other. That's not the way the human mind works. We use, we use our left hemisphere spheric ability to communicate with words. So you know, Joe, you go left, Fred, you go right, uh, and you'll both spear the, uh, the the Macedon from both sides. That's that's how we communicate with each other, uh, and that's how we transmit our values. We don't do it mathematically or with analytical uh rigor. And the example of that that I use in the book was very early in the the, uh, the Republican nominating process in late. Two thousand and fifteen, when you know the Republicans had these enormous uh primary uh debates, and you know no one no one took Donald Trump seriously, someone asked Ben Carson, who, for whatever you think of him, was a very famous neurosurgeon, uh, and they asked him what he thought of vaccination, and he thought the science and back of it. Uh, was pretty solid. And then he, you know, gave the typical Republican answer, which was, but, you know, no one's going to force you to take, you know, I don't want anybody to be forced to take a vaccination. Uh, and Donald Trump interrupted him and said, I had an employee who had a daughter who got vaccinated, a beautiful child. This was a beautiful child. And she developed autism. It's an epidemic, I tell you. It's an epidemic. And he knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, he knew that you know ben carson 's data uh were nothing compared to his narrative all right so that 's why you know that's that 's an example of the importance of of narratives now status seeking again uh is is something that has to do with with sexual selection uh if you 're a female and you 're looking for a mate, your major concern is passing on your DNA and the way your DNA gets passed on is if you and your progeny are well-provided for, all right? And your your progeny will be well-provided for if your mate, uh, if the father of the children, uh, is a macher, someone who can bring home the meat and command other people. If you don't, you're not going to pick a weakling, because if you pick a weakling, uh, then that, that person, that man, will not provide for you and your children, and you are less likely to pass your... Um, your genes on and we see it today uh you know in society today you're a lot more likely to pass your jeans on if you're a rock star or a professional athlete than you know if you're someone who didn't graduate high school and can't jump
0: interesting so let's go to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests starting with what are you streaming these days give us your favorite netflix podcast amazon prime what what's keeping you entertained during a Lockdown. Well, I'm afraid I'm not much
1: on popular culture. The 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 the, the, the series that we're into right now uh, is Greenleaf, which is about a African American evangelical church, and it's just it's just a great soap opera. The acting is spectacular. The move the music fantastic. The cinematography is, is you know, is Emmy class. I mean, it's just absolutely a spectacular series. And best of all, it's 65 episodes. So it'll keep you occupied uh, for for a while. And, you know, like everybody else of my ilk, I'm waiting for the next season of uh, Succession and Better Call Saul and Ozark. Uh, huh. As far as podcasts uh, go. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid that most of my reading bandwidth and my podcast bandwidth gets taken up by The Economist, and it's almost overkill to do both of those with The Economist. But the thing that you get from The Economist podcast that you don't get from reading the magazine is the flavor of just how smart and funny these people are. And you have to put names on them, too. Uh, of course, you know the, the 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 Economist doesn't have bylines, so you right. actually get to listen to the people who who hear about, who, who, excuse me, you get to listen to the people who are writing the articles, and that is marvelously entertaining. Uh, I love Planet Money, I love your shows, uh, and and of course, uh, On the Media is another series that's very very smart. I also like uh, the uh, the New Yorker, just because I simply can't get enough of of David Remnick. Huh.
0: He, he's certainly amusing. Uh, let's talk about some mentors. Who are the people who influenced your thought process, your philosophy, your career? Well, first of all,
1: career-wise, I have to give credit to two people who most people haven't heard of. Uh, one of whom is um, Scott Burns, who wrote Finance, for the Dallas Morning uh, News. Uh, he's not your typical personal finance writer. He went to uh, uh, MIT, uh, and then he would go over to Harvard, Harvard to take writing lessons from Archibald uh, McLeish. Uh, and he was the first person who, who, who basically uh, encouraged me and told me that very few people had the ability both to do the math and write well. And if I had that ability, and he thought I did, I should uh, be encouraged to do it. And I was you know, very discouraged at that point in my career, so he gave me the impetus. And the other person is someone who's even more obscure, a financial advisor by the name of Frank Armstrong, who was the very first person I'm aware of to put a finance book on the web, investing for the twentieth century or investing for the twenty first century. I think he had two different editions. And he was the one who told me to put my book, The Intelligent Asset Allocator, uh, on the web, which jump-started my writing career. Now, as far as investing goes, you know, it's the usual suspects. Um, it's, it's going to be Jack Bogle, who I did have some personal contact with, and, of course, Fama and French, who I had almost no personal contact with, who were my intellectual uh, mentors, and then there were the people who've helped me along in my career. Prime among which are John Rakenthaler at uh, Morningstar and Jonathan mm-hmm. Clements at the uh, at the Journal. And then he was succeeded by uh, Jason Zweig, uh, who is someone that I derive a great deal of uh, uh, personal inspiration from as well.
0: That's a great list. Let's talk about some of your favorite books and, and what you're reading right now.
1: Okay, well, the two favorite books that I always mention to everybody are Expert Political Judgment by Phil Tetlock, uh, which talks about just how difficult it is uh, to forecast well how poorly people do at it, and particularly the characteristics of poor forecasters, uh, which is uh, which is immensely valuable since that turns out to be most of the people on TV. And he explains exactly why people on TV, uh, talking heads, tend to be miserable uh, forecasters, and identifies in fact that they that they that they are. Uh, the other book that I recommend it's kind of a grim book, and it seems irrelevant to finance. Uh, but I think it's just so very important, which is Lawrence Reeves' history of Auschwitz. Auschwitz, a new history, and it was a history of Auschwitz from the perspective of the camp personnel. Uh, And the bottom line is if you can understand how very ordinary Germans became mass murderers, then you can certainly understand Enron uh, and WorldCom and, and WeWork. All right, Uh, and and it's it's just very important for people in finance if you can make that jump. Now, the book that I'm reading right now, I'm not even done with it, but it's one of the most brilliant books I've I've ever read. Is a book called The Weirdest People in the World. Uh, Weird is an acronym, W-E-I-R-D, which stands for Western Educated, uh, uh, Industrialized, uh, Rich and Democratic, which is all of Western society. And it's a book, first of all, about how unusual we are. It's a book by a man named Joseph Henrich, who is an interesting guy in himself, which I'll get to in in a minute. And he has this bizarre thesis, which, you know, strikes most people as, as outrageous, and it's the reason why the book isn't more widely read than it is. And the thesis is that we are who we are in Western society, and we're rich the way we are, because uh, the Church forbade cousin marriage, which seems like a really weird hypothesis. Until he explains it to you, and then he goes into the data and back of it, which is just absolutely steel trap. Uh, he brings an enormous amount of data from anthropology and social psychology uh, to bear on it, and he makes an extremely convincing case. Uh, and it's not just that the the you know the the church forbade the marriage of first cousins, they forbade the marriage of even fifth cousins in some instances. And if you can't marry your fifth cousin, it basically means you have to get out of town to find a a mate. And what that does is it greatly increases your radius of trust, okay? You start trusting people who are outside your immediate family and tribe. And that is the essential characteristic of the wealthiest modern society. The reason why the Danes and the Norwegians, uh, and the Germans do so well is because they trust strangers, alright? And if you look at the places in the world that don't do well, uh, that have poor, poor economies and poor politics and poor institutions, it's societies with very low radius of trust. So for example, it's the difference between Northern and Southern Italy. The radius of trust in northern Italy is very high. The radius of trust in in um, in uh, southern Italy is is very very low, and something that you know, sociologists have known about for years, for decades. So it's it's a book that explains all that, and it's it's just uh, it's an amazing read, and I can't recommend the book highly enough.
0: Huh. Interesting. You, you mentioned he has an unusual background.
1: He didn't start out with the usual four star. You know, uh, academic background. He 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 started out as an aerospace engineer, I think, at a state university somewhere. Uh, but he did a minor in anthropology, and after working in aerospace for a while, and you look at his pictures, and he looks like your typical aerospace engineer. You know, with the thin horn rim glasses. He doesn't have a pocket protector, but he should have one. Uh, and uh, and he he starts doing. He gets a PhD in anthropology, and he starts doing his research, and the research is so. So remarkably good that he just gradually ascends the academic um, uh, ladder. First at the University of British Columbia, and now he's got an endowed chair of anthropology at Harvard, and this enormous team of uh, multidisciplinary researchers in, in, in under him. You know, psychologists and economists uh, and social psychologists, and his his work is just absolutely. Brilliant. Once, once you start reading the book, if you're academically inclined, you'll get lost in the thicket of his references because the references are so fascinating. Huh.
0: So he's another left brain, right brain person who could do both the math and the narrative side.
1: Yes. He, he, and I haven't mentioned that he also writes very well.
0: Right. You're another one of those people who have the ability to deal with the underlying mathematics and the language side, and and that's a relatively rare combination of skills. Oh, shucks Barry, I'm I'm just a simple country neurologist. (laughs) That's right. Let's get to our last uh, two questions. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college graduate who was interested in a career in either neurology, investing, or writing?
1: Well, the usual uh, admonition to follow your bliss uh, is just awful advice. Um, you know, my fav- one of my favorite New Yorker cartoons is the typical you know cartoon where they have a guy with you know t- uh, sitting on the street in shambles with a with a with a hat in front of him and his sign says "Followed my bliss." Uh, you know, you you have to you have to make a living, uh, and the the best thing you can do is to meld those two things. You shouldn't you shouldn't take a job that you despise just to make money. But on the other hand, you know you, you shouldn't get a degree in, in ethnomusicology uh, as well and expect to have a happy existence. Uh, you know, you need to, to, to have a decent standard of living, you need to provide for your family, and you need to save up so that if you ever get sick of your job, you can follow your bliss at that point and not have to worry about your next, your next meal. And the best part of doing that is if you can wind up uh, with reasonable savings at age 40 or 50, you don't have to worry about what to do with the last 20 or 30 years of your life because you'll have whole new careers uh, in front of you, and these will be things that you genuinely enjoy doing. So don't follow your bliss. Don't take a job just for the money. Try and meld those two things intelligently and balance them off.
0: I have to ask, since you, you referenced, what what's your take on the whole uh, early retirement fire community that that seems to believe you can save enough money and tap out at in your 30s or 40s?
1: Oh, it's a great idea, as long as you don't get sick or have kids.
0: <laughs> so, uh, not a fan. Let me... Uh, uh,
1: yeah, I, I think I think the heart is in the right place. Uh, I, I think they're a little delusional, and, of course, they, they also ignore you know, about the realities of life. And I think they also ignore, uh, you know, what do you do with your life when you go to the beach at age 30 or 40? You better have something worthwhile that you want to do with your life. You better have a mission in life, uh, because if you don't, you're going to wind up suffering from industrial grade ennui. I don't want to trash them too much. I mean, I like these people, and I think that their message for our society that we live in a corrosive consumer culture that has to be resisted and you should keep your living expenses down is certainly a very salutary message.
0: Fair enough. And our final question, what do you know about the world of investing today that you wish you knew 30-plus years ago or so when you were first getting started in finance?
1: Well, you know, academics like to play this parlor game of do equities become riskier, uh, you know, over, over, less riskier, more risky over over time. And there are arguments on both sides that most academicians will tell you that they become riskier with time. But what I, I only fully understood, you know, until after doing it, I didn't understand until after doing finance for a couple of decades, was that that's kind of a silly question. Uh, The real question is, how risky are stocks at a given stage in your life cycle? Uh, And so if you are, you know, retired and you don't have any human capital left, then stocks are Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, toxic. They're very dangerous. Uh, because, you know, if you have a bear market, uh, and a bad bear market uh, that's prolonged, you've got bad sequence risk, and you may wind up eating eating alcohol. At the other end of the spectrum, if you're young, There's almost no risk to earning stocks because you're periodically saving, and at some point in your 30- or 40-year saving career, you're going to buy a lot of stocks very cheap, and you're going to wind up doing very, very well. And I wish I had understood that earlier in my career so I could have been more aggressive earlier in my career. But, you know, as it was, I did fine, so I don't feel too bad about that. But if there's one lesson I wish I had had learned, I had had internalized, it was I could have been a lot more aggressive when I was younger.
0: Very interesting. Bill Bernstein, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with William Bernstein, author most recently of The Delusion of Crowds, Why People Go Mad in Groups, as well as a dozen other books. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the previous 390 conversations we've had over the past seven years. You can find that at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you feed your podcast fix. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Give us a review on Apple iTunes. You can sign up for my daily reads at ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps us put these conversations together each and every week. Tim Harrow is my audio engineer. Atiko Valbrun is my project manager. Michael Boyle is my producer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.